Well, if you pay any attention to the news, even intermittently, you're aware of the somewhat bizarre political season that we find ourselves in. I trust most of you are familiar with the news enough to know that. And we, we live in interesting times. When we watch that, we follow that. It seems that every day, secular pressure is building and society descends further and further and further into rebellion against God. There's even policy that's legislated that is contrary to the very character of God. And the voices that oppose God that we hear, they're getting louder. They're getting louder. And if we're honest, some of us, we, we have to admit that it, it unsettles us that the times in which we live can be unsettling. They can be unsettling for Christians. But in the midst of what may be unsettling times for us, what may be unsettling times for the church, we need to ask a few questions. They're challenging questions. They're questions that, that hit us where we're comfortable, particularly in our, in our country having enjoyed the great freedoms that we have enjoyed. We need to ask, does the church need, does the church need allies in government to succeed? Does God need, does God need conservative leaders in our nation to carry out his purposes for the church? While you're considering that, maybe a more important question is this. Do you believe in the invincibility of the church? Do you believe in the invincibility of the church? Not the invincibility of Christian culture, or the invincibility of this building, or even the invincibility of our, of our physical bodies, but the invincibility of the church those souls that Christ died for, that Christ purchased and justified by his death and resurrection, the invincibility of that. Christ himself said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. When we hear that, we have to ask, do we believe that? Do you believe it? Do you believe Christ's promise? And if we do, why do we find ourselves unsettled at the tumult that's going on in the world around us? If you find yourself unsettled with what's going on in our country, and at the same time we hear that promise from Christ that his church will prevail by his authority, do we have reason to be unsettled? The church has been afflicted since Pentecost, since its inception, and yet God's word assures us that the church will prevail. God's purposes will prevail. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, Luke gives an account of events that vividly 
demonstrate God's sovereign power in the protection of his church. God's purpose for the church, whatever it may be at any given time, will prevail. The power of God's word to accomplish everything that he has determined and appointed to take place will happen. It cannot be thwarted. God's purposes for the church absolutely cannot be thwarted. And Acts 12 provides a a vivid display of that truth. I love Acts 12. I love this story. It is exciting. It is humorous. There are humorous humorous portions of this, and ultimately it is awe-inspiring as we look at God and what he does. And it serves as an invigorating dose of confidence for weak faith. Faith that is wondering what's going to happen. Faith that that is wondering, is the church going to prevail? What about everything that's going on around? This story is a confidence booster. The first 23 verses of Acts 12 are really one story, and we can consider it as one story with two chapters. And as we study this text tonight, those two chapters, so to speak, will serve as our outline as we look at two demonstrations of God's sovereign power that assure an afflicted church. Two demonstrations of God's sovereign power that assure an afflicted church. And by the time we get to chapter 12 in the book of Acts, the gospel has been extended to the Gentiles through Peter's ministry. Paul's ministry has begun, and we start to see the growth of the Antioch church which would become a key church in the missionary journeys. And Luke is going to begin to shift focus away from Peter and on to Paul as he continues through the rest of the book. But before he completes that shift, we have this account in Acts 12, which is centered on the church in Jerusalem, and in particular, Peter. Now, rather than read the entire story in one clip, I'm going to read this as as I work through it. And so we'll just sort of let the story unfold as we work through that together and see what, uh, what this story has for us. As we see God's sovereign power in the life of his church demonstrated. And I hope, my hope for this message is that it's encouraging, that it's confidence building, not superficially, but that we see just an example, one example of God working on behalf of his church. God keeps his promises, he will not be thwarted, and fighting against him is ultimately futile. So picking up in verse 1 of Acts chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. So verse one, Luke introduces us to Herod the king. This is Herod Agrippa I, who is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Herod that was ruling when Christ was born. Just to give us a little bit of 
of chronology where we are. Now, historical accounts indicate that this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, was, lived a sordid life. He was an evil man, much like many of the other Herods. A lot of political maneuvering had taken place prior to this account, and so favor finally fell his way politically, and his kingdom was about the same size as it was when Herod the Great ruled. And at the time of, of our story in Acts 12, Herod Agrippa I ruled all of Palestine. So he's shown here to have been arresting some in the church, laying hands on them, that is arresting them, persecuting them. He's persecuting the church. And Luke points out just one of those whom he persecuted who was one of the apostles, James. He notes specifically there's more than one James, more than one important James in the early church. And so he tells us this is James, the brother of John, distinct from James, the brother of the Lord, who will come up later in the story and later in Acts. This is one of the sons of Zebedee, the apostle John's brother. The detail of James' death is brief. James was an apostle. This is the first apostolic martyr, but not a whole lot of history is given here. Very short. He was martyred. It says that he was put to death with a sword. The means of his martyrdom was the sword that could have implied that he was run through or beheaded. He would have been beheaded as an apostate, as an apostate since he was Jewish, as one who had abandoned the Jewish faith. Whatever it was, news of this first apostolic martyr pleases the Jews. It pleases those who were in that region, and Herod was pleased that they were pleased. Right, that's the point. All of this is background, getting to the point of why was Peter arrested? Peter was arrested because Herod had James put to death. It pleased the ruling Jews, and Herod wanted to curry favor with them. One thing important to note about this story all the way through is that Herod is greatly concerned with his popularity. And in this particular portion, he's really particular about his popularity with the ruling Jews. And so he says, they liked it when I got James. They liked it when I put him to death. What will the Jews think if I get Peter? Okay? If James pleased them, surely Peter, this thorn in the side of the ruling Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, will please them. So Peter's arrested and he's kept in prison, but he's not killed immediately. We ask why, and it seems to indicate that force in the text. It's during the days of unleavened bread, Passover week. So Herod intends, it says in verse 4, to kill him after the Passover. Why? Well, the way Luke tells us the story, he tells us that that was the point he wanted him arrested so that he could, intending after the Passover, to bring him out before the people. Remember, Herod's not doing this simply because he has a vendetta against Peter. He wants everybody to see. He wants the Jews to see. He wants to get the favor from that. And when there's a big crowd in Jerusalem just after Passover, that would be the perfect time for him to parade this prize out and do with him what he will. Also, as a pious Jew, that Herod was, he wouldn't disrupt the Passover. That would have been disastrous. It would have made the Jews mad instead of getting the favor from them that he wanted. So he wasn't going to do that. He was going to delay until it's crowded, so he has his crowd on hand. And so he waits, and Peter is held in prison. There's an interesting background note in verse 5. Peter's in prison. That's the, the main point, but 
prayer. Prayer was being offered to him, for him, to God, by the church. This, Luke, in county, including this detail, he's, he's building the story. He's showing us what he wants to get across. There's good, this is good versus evil right here. God, who's being prayed to, right, and those who oppose to God. Herod, who's arrested Peter in opposition to God and opposition to the church. You have Herod, who's violently opposing the church, having laid hands on them, some of them already, having killed one of the apostles already, and then you have the church, and they're praying. Herod has guards, he has a prison, he has weapons, and the church has prayer. The church has faith. The church has trust and confidence in Almighty God. And this sets the stage for what's going to unfold in the story. It sets the stage for the first demonstration of God's sovereign power on behalf of his church, which is a miraculous deliverance. In verse 6, on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. With these details, Luke makes it obvious that Herod does not want Peter to escape. It is one guy. It's Peter, okay? But Herod assigns four squads to guard him, and each squad would have probably contained four soldiers, so you've got 16 soldiers on a rotating watch. Verse 6 tells us that two guards were chained to Peter, and that guards were also placed in front of the entrance to the prison. And as we'll see in a moment, verse 10 includes that there were three levels of security besides the guard chained to him, and this included at least one metal gate. Why all the details? Luke's making clear. Herod didn't want Peter to escape. and More importantly, a few guys from the local church in Jerusalem aren't going to be able to just stroll in and release Peter. Okay, he's on maximum security lockdown. Herod wants Peter dead. He wants the favor of the Jews. And he doesn't want to be interrupted. He doesn't want his plans to be thwarted. So James has already been killed. Peter is in a dire situation. And Herod's intent for Peter is obvious. But who concludes an interesting detail? Remember, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, any details could have been included that, that he wanted or omitted. Peter's sleeping. He's sleeping. That doesn't mean Peter knew he was going to be released, but evidently he, he didn't have sleepless anxiety. Luke includes that. He's asleep between these two guards. He appears to be settled. It gives us maybe a small glimpse into the faith, the maturity of the apostle Peter. He knew from the Lord's words that he was going to be martyred. He has settled confidence in the Lord. Whether he lived or died, he was in God's hands. He's sleeping at this, this hour. Verse 7, behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself, 
And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. So on the very night, the eve that Peter's going to be brought in for trial, probably mock trial, execution before the Jews, an angel shows up and wakes Peter up. We've said this is a miraculous deliverance, and Luke spares no detail in making clear that this is an intervention of God. It can't be explained away by some sort of natural or scientific law. God breaks in. He intervenes on Peter's behalf. Just look at, just consider all the details. Most obviously, right, there's an angel, okay, an angel shows up. Then when the angel physically wakes up Peter, the chains just fall off, okay, they're done, the light shining from around the, 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 in the cell from the angel doesn't wake up the guards. They're in, a, in sleep that God has certainly placed over them. And they walk past the first and second guard outside the cell with no disturbance. And then maybe to top it all off, the metal gate just opens. Just automatically, no big deal. It just opens and they walk through. Peter, or Luke's telling of this story leaves no room for some sort of rationalistic explanation of what happened, how the church broke him out. It was God. It was a miracle. It was a miraculous deliverance against all odds, against all of the circumstances that were there in place, humanly speaking. God is intervening. He's completely embarrassing Herod's plans. Herod did what he could do to make sure this wasn't going to happen. And God takes care of it with no problem. It's kind of humorous. Peter's groggy. The, the angel prods him. Gird yourself. You've given him instructions. Put on your clothes. Put on your sandals. Put on your shoes. Come on, wake up. And Peter doesn't even think it's real. He thinks he's seen a vision. They arrive in the street outside. The deliverance is complete. And then Peter comes to his senses. And Peter's commentary in verse 11 is important because this tells us exactly how we're to understand the events that have taken place. When Peter came to himself, he recognizes this isn't a vision. He's outside in the street, no longer bound. What's he say? Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. God thwarted the plans of Herod and the expectation of the Jews, the enemies of the church. And Peter recognized that immediately. This is an act of God. God has done this for these reasons. He's rescued me from this enemy, his enemy that was raised up against him, and he's rescued me from the Jews and all that they were expecting to take place. Every impedance that was put in place by Herod, taken care of, taken out of the way. God does what he wants. I mean, you just, just consider the, how outrageous the escape is. All of the levels of security, God just does what he wants. It's his purposes that are, that are ruling, not Herod's desires, not the armies of, of those who are raised up against God and raised up against the church, the Jewish leaders, all of those who wanted Peter dead. It wasn't time. God had other plans for Peter, other plans for the church. And so he completely embarrasses Herod, negates everything that was there, and puts on a display of his sovereign power in a miraculous deliverance. And he demonstrates to Peter, to the church there, and by extension to us, 
that he is fully capable of intervening to see to it that his plans for the church are fulfilled, no matter what. Whatever he's deemed that needs to come to pass in the life of his church will happen in his time according to his power. Verse 12, Peter's in the street. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So Peter's in the street outside. The angel's no longer with him. We have a, a, a dose of reality, a dose of human responsibility alongside of this miraculous deliverance. The angel didn't beam Peter to safety. He gets him out of the prison. He leaves. Peter wakes up, and now he's a fugitive, right? I mean, think about it. He's in the streets having escaped. Once everybody realizes he's escaped, they're going to come looking for him. So he has to rely on his wits and get to a safe place. So he goes to Mark's mother's house, and there's a gathering of the church there. And again, Luke notes what they were doing. They were praying. You have this aligning in the story of the church and those set opposed to the church. You have God's doing on one side, and you have all of the action that's taking place by those who are set against God on the other. So Luke notes again, the church is gathered, they're in this house, and they're praying, just as they were at the beginning of the story. They're praying. The church is under attack, but they're praying. The rest of the scene is one of those portions of Scripture that I think encourages confidence in divine authorship, okay? No human being intended to write a fanciful story that only makes people look good, that only makes the characters involved look good would have included the details that we're about to come to. There's too much reality in verses 13 and 14, okay? There's too much human frailty and too much reality in these verses, so keep that in mind as we read, but Luke includes them. This is, this is real. This is reality. It's about as human as it gets in this story. You've got on one hand this amazing deliverance, this amazing act of God. You see the people praying, but it doesn't go on to talk about their utter confidence and, and how big their faith is. Instead, we have some human frailty on display. Verse 13. So Peter goes to the house where they're praying. Verse 13. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. So Peter's knocking at the door. He's a fugitive, and these people are gathered praying for Peter, and he shows up. He knocks. The servant girl answers the door. She recognizes it's him. She doesn't let him in. She just gets excited and then runs to tell everybody, Peter's outside, and those of you with, with young daughters can appreciate this, right? There's just excitement, intensity. Hey, what they've been talking about in there, he's here. And he, that she just runs off, and Peter's out there. So she takes off in hysteria, and Peter is just like waiting out there, hoping Herod's men aren't going to show up behind him. Verse 15, it gets worse. They said to her, you are out of your mind. She kept insisting that it was so, they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord 
had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. So Peter the fugitive standing outside, the servant girls excited telling the faith-filled praying church that Peter's out there. And what do they say? You're nuts. You're crazy. He's not there. And she keeps insisting that he's out there. No, he is. She's persistent. So they changed their tactic. Fine, we're not going to tell you that we're crazy. We're just going to make something else up. It's his angel. Don't worry about it. It's not really him. Now, does that strike you as odd? It's his angel. Don't worry about it. Like, that's more believable than Peter being outside? No, no, it's not maybe what we've been praying for. It's an angel. It's Peter's angel. It's hilarious. I can't figure out, reading through this, how that is more, how that is more believable than, than Peter actually being there. Evidently, the church did not anticipate Peter's escape, okay? Maybe, maybe they weren't praying for his escape. Maybe they were praying for his confidence, his endurance. We don't know. I don't want to lambast them for, for an apparent lack of faith. They were praying, but they didn't expect, and so instead they give this backwards angelology explanation to Rhoda why she's excited. Whatever their thoughts in the midst of the excitement, finally, right, common sense prevails. Peter keeps knocking, and eventually they let him in. In verse 17, he gets them quiet. You can imagine the ruckus, right? You can imagine the celebration uh, that's going on. And Peter's saying, Psh. So he motions to them with his hand to be silent. And then he describes to them what had happened. And it's interesting to see exactly what he described. He didn't say, an angel released me. Luke's summary of what happened, Peter's explanation to them, the Lord. The Lord led him out of prison. It was an act of God. He's telling the church, God intervened, God acted on our behalf, and I'm out. So he gives them really quick instruction, tell James, this different James than the James who's killed at the beginning of the story, is James, a brother of the Lord, who had evidently by this time been uh, assumed the role of some leadership in the Jerusalem church. And so Peter says, go tell him what just happened. And then Peter flees. And that's it. Peter's out of the scene. It's not important to the story, to, to the author, where he goes. The point is that he goes. He's a fugitive. He's, he's out of here. The, the story's complete in one sense as it concerns Peter. God intervened in a miraculous deliverance, released Peter. Peter gives his commentary twice. Verse 11, the Lord did this on my behalf. He embarrassed Herod and the Jews. And then he tells the people, the Lord led me out of prison. There's a shift in verse 18, and it kind of like pans back to what's going on at the prison. So you've got the storyline as it unfolds with Peter escaping. He's back at the church, and now, well, what's going to happen back at the prison? So we go back in verse 18. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become to Peter. When Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. No small disturbance, I, I would imagine. Can you imagine the confusion? Can you imagine all of the guards? Luke already detailed all of the measures that were in place to prevent this from happening. It was, humanly speaking, their 
of, uh, nobody's going to break in there, right? How could they possibly explain this to Herod? So Herod searches the city. He investigates the guards to determine Peter's whereabouts, and when Peter's not found, he has the guards led away to be executed, which would have been the practice in that day for guards who fail at their duties or for those suspected of wrongdoing. So Herod evidently doesn't consider the fact that this was a miracle. He punishes the prisoners. He's mad. Things didn't go well. He's not getting to parade Peter out there. He's not going to get the favor of the Jews. He's been embarrassed. His plans have been thwarted. So he leaves. He has the guards killed, and he leaves. And at this point, the focus of the story shifts from the first demonstration, which was a miraculous deliverance, now to a second demonstration of God's sovereign power that assures an afflicted church, and that is an inglorious death. The second demonstration of God's sovereign power is an inglorious death. Verse 20, now he, being Herod, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace, because their country was fed by the king's country. So verses 20 through 22 provide the background details for the main event that's coming. For some reason, Herod is angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And as the ruler in the area, evidently he had control over the supply lines and his anger at them was affecting their ability to get food. So, much like it is today, in order to get on the good side of Herod, they befriend Herod's chamberlain, Blastus. Now, a chamberlain would be like the president's chief of staff, a right-hand man in close quarters to the leader. And so, they get in good with Her uh, Blastus in order to get in good with Herod. And that's the background. You have a group of people who need to be in good with this leader. You have the leader who's mad at them and who has the power to punish them when he's mad at them. And so they want reconciliation, superficially at least, so that they can get food. Verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum, the judgment seat, and began delivering an address, an address to them. And the people, in response, kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. So evidently, as part of Herod's dealings with these people that wanted to curry his favor, a large, a large event is orchestrated. And Herod's going to address the people, and they are going to make a big fuss about him. And so it says he's in his royal apparel, he's in his royal garb, kind of setting the stage, and he sits on his judgment seat, and as he's addressing the crowd in response, these people who wanted his favor, remember, are crying out the voice of a God and not of a man. And as the people are fawning Herod with glory only reserved for God, an angel strikes him down. Verse 23, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. There's an abrupt ending to, to Herod's <laughs> blasphemous 
address and the false, fake glory that he was receiving from the people. God sends an angel, just like he did for Peter, only this time it's to execute swift judgment on this enemy of God. Luke explains the affliction by including that Herod was eaten by worms and died. And there's a whole lot of speculation. What was that? What? He was eaten by worms and he died. And can the ultimate end, at least in this case of those who oppose God, be any more stark? God thwarts his plans in the first half of the story, releasing Peter, embarrassing Herod, then Herod in another position, having his ego stroked, and God eliminates him immediately. Eaten by worms. What's important to note is the reason that Herod was punished. Verse 23, Luke says, because he did not give God the glory. Herod's desire for glorious praise from the people resulted in an inglorious death. He had set himself as an enemy of God by attacking the church and then he didn't re redirect this honor that was being given to him. He accepted it for himself. And God's not going to share his glory. Herod didn't get a chance to claim ignorance. He was eliminated. He was judged swiftly. His breath was taken from him like that. The message of Acts and the message of Acts 12 to God's people is to trust God's sovereign power to carry out his plans, to protect his church as he sees fit, to carry out his purposes for his church. Herod stretches out his hand against church at the beginning of the story, right? So said he was stretching out his hand against the church, and at the end, God stretches out his hand against Herod, and the results are irre irreversible. And this is just an example. This story, story just serves as a demonstration of what God does, it's assuring, it's assuring for us, not because any time we're in danger we can be sure that we'll be given physical deliverance, that's not the point. This story does not mean that martyrdom represents some failure on God's part to deliver his people or a, or a success of the enemies of God. The point, the point isn't assurance of physical protection and physical deliverance, but in the midst of affliction, even severe affliction against the church, we can be assured that the redemptive purposes of Christ in his church cannot ultimately be stopped. And at the end of this account that very vividly demonstrates that because it includes physical deliverance and it includes miracles, Luke gives a powerful summary. And it emphasizes where our confidence should be. And it emphasizes what it is that God's doing that we need to be confident in. Verse 24 but, in contrast to what? Everything that had just taken place. The word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. The word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. This summary statement makes clear that, it, that God's word is inherently powerful to carry out God's mission. The summary here goes beyond Acts 12. It's a summary for a larger section of Acts, but it absolutely includes the events in Acts 12, which is why it's placed here. God's indomitable power to carry out his mission through his word cannot, will not, ultimately 
be thwarted. Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected so that men and women could have forgiveness for their sins, everlasting life. That truth of the gospel cannot be bound. It absolutely cannot be bound, and that's the point of verse 24. The word of the Lord continued. In God's sovereign power, it continued to grow and accomplish his purposes. God doesn't need the help of political leaders. The church doesn't need, it doesn't need freedom of religion. It's nice, but God doesn't need those things. The church doesn't need those things to carry out God's purposes. God does what he wants, when he wants, and as he wills, and he's promised to build his church. And he's building his church soul by soul, and we can be confident that he will not be thwarted by the plans of sinful men. No matter how uncertain, no matter how tumultuous things are around us, God's ultimate plans for his people will not be thwarted. We're here right now, those who are Christians, disciples are here in this place because the word of the Lord has continued to grow and to be multiplied, just as it says in verse 24. We're in that chain still, all the way back to the book of Acts. The faithfulness of God through the gospel multiplying and growing his church. 